Welcome to the Dolores Project. Today we're going to talk about all things antithetical to Valentine's Day. War, killing, dehumanization, weapons of mass destruction, lethal autonomous weapon systems. Happy Valentine's Day. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have a special guest, uh, John Emery, all the way from Oklahoma. John, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, John and I, we've been friends on Twitter for a while, and uh, just very excited to have you here, man, and just talk about some different things in just war theory, um, ethics of AI, warfare, autonomous systems, all those things that you're an expert on. Uh, so thanks for being here and sharing your expertise with us. So John, as we normally do, just like to ask you to, to share a little bit about yourself. That doesn't have to be related to pedigree, anything that you want to tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I think the kind of fundamental question for those of us who study issues of war and violence is really how we came about to study that thing. And I think it's, it's kind of a unique realm and that it's touched by every discipline, the arts, the poets, everything else focuses on war. And I think there's kind of an allure and both repellence to the issues of war and that it gets to the extremes of the human condition, mm -hmm. right? Both the superhuman, the inhuman, and the immensely kind of human emotion of war and conflict. And so I think that's what draws me to it. And I think why I'm, I guess, would call myself a techno-pessimist in some regards to the issues of technology and war. Um, but, you know, I grew up in the in the 9-11 era, I remember I was in, in middle school, not to date myself, uh, but in middle school when 9-11 happened. And then I distinctly remember in my small hometown in Utah, uh, seeing the beginning of the shock and awe campaign on all the TVs in the back mm -hmm. of the Walmart in my small town outside of Salt Lake City. And so <laughs> war was always kind of informative in my life, and I was always interested in it. And once I got to college at Gonzaga University, you know, studying with the Jesuits there, um, really started to interrogate a lot more kind of philosophical and um, art history and kind of integrating all these elements into war. And so um, I really come, even though I'm in a field of political science, I come at it with a kind of humanities and philosophy background that really informs my understanding of war. So I'm excited to chat with you and probe all of the technological uh, elements of contemporary and the future of war with you today. Yeah, John, I think it's a uh... It's definitely a, a deep topic that you say, you know, it touches on all aspects of us as humans and our concerns. And I remember that as well. When 9-11 when happened, I'm, I remember where I was, in which class I was in, um, in middle school and um, just seeing the video play on like everybody turned the TVs on 
And it, it was just strange, but that would also change the course of my life because yeah. as you know, um, I, I fought in the Iraq war and, and several of my friends did. And so, yeah, and maybe that's a good starting place for us is, um, you know, in that campaign, you see a lot of um, similar things that we saw in the Vietnam War, like, a, you know, PTSD, all, all the moral injury, harm. And I'd like to get your perspective on that, John. And, and we talked about this in other places, but, uh, you know, what about the, the moral cost of warfare on the individual? Um, and what's your perspective on that? You know, building this big empire of war and how that's related to AI, which you can get to in a minute. But, you know, let's just ask the hard question up front. Is it, is it worth the moral cost to the soldier? I would say in general, no. And that's, that's one thing that I think we tend to neglect when we talk about, you know, you said bellum or the justice in going to war is all of the uncertainty, all of the horror um, that it unleashes both on their civilians and on our soldiers, right? When we as a political community decide to engage in war, we say that we're willing to put our soldiers at risk, right? And one of the, one of the elements in, that proponents of kind of a more mechanized warfare argue for is the fact that we shouldn't put our soldiers at risk anymore because they have PTSD and it has high economic costs as well as social costs. So if we can automate war to a certain extent, then we don't have to worry about those things. And I kind of reject that because if the war is truly, if you're truly willing to fight and to send soldiers to die over it, uh, then truly it must be a quote unquote just war, mm. right? That you have to be willing to make those sacrifices as a political community. But something that was really informative for me in my time as a graduate student at UC Irvine, um, I taught a few classes on ethics of war and we had quite a few students using their GI Bill um, mm -hmm. to come there from Camp Pendleton. So quite a few Marines. So I was able to interview my students anytime, uh, and my veteran students, anytime they took my classes. And you know, some of their stories were so powerful and it's interesting that they mirrored a lot of the same dilemmas that Michael Walzer talks about in his famous Just and Unjust Wars, that you know, talking about clearing out uh, buildings in Fallujah, and they would tell me how some of their fellow soldiers would just throw grenades into houses without even mm -hmm. actually clearing them. Yeah. You know, that's something that Walter cites as a lack of exercising due care in warfare. You know, the idea that we need, as soldiers, need to put ourselves at some reasonable amount of risk in order to protect civilian life, right? But that carries a moral cost and a moral weight. Mm -hmm. And one of the other soldiers I talked to discussed how he, you know, was doing the night raids and kicking in doors and things like that. And as he started to do it more and more, he started to see his uncles and his cousins in the faces of the people that he was tying up um, and interrogating. And so that had a really profound effect on him. Uh, there's a great new book out um, by Ned Dobos called The Ethics of the War Machine. That's really fantastic at looking at the non-economic costs of having a standing army and those kind of societal costs, the emotional costs and the toll that it takes and the moral injury that we ask soldiers to do, because thankfully we have this moral aversion to killing, mm. right? But sometimes in extreme circumstances, you know, uh, soldiers take it too far or they're encouraged to take it too far, like in Abu Ghraib mm -hmm. and other 
and other instances of detainee abuse and torture um, in the Iraq war, but that has a profound effect on our soldiers and our society as well. Yeah. Have you seen the um, documentary Restrippo? Yes. I showed it in my national security class a couple of years ago. Yeah. I thought that was pretty, um, pretty close to some of my friends' experiences when they talk about um, like the addiction to it. Like it's, there's nothing else like it as far as like, you know, you, you don't just go back home and experience the same. I don't know. It's just, it's hard to explain what you feel. And, um, and then you're just kind of stripped from that and then put back into a civilian context and expected to somehow function normally. Like it's, it's such a strange phenomenon that you, you even go through. And even before you get into, um, you know, if you're going to be an infantryman or whatever, even before you get to the field or, or overseas, you you kind of go through a process of learning to dehumanize the enemy. I mean, that's a major. You have to. Yeah, it's a major piece of research, right? And um, Dave Grossman's book talks about that um, on killing, and it, I, I think even that process is um, psychologically harmful even absolutely even think about like what you have to do to get to a point where i might potentially have to kill somebody um and then what that does to you later on um so i think the psychology of it is just fascinating how much research we've kind of put into it Uh, and so john i've I've been curious to ask you this question um, about how much funding we are putting in the u.s into um, ai robotic warfare all this stuff and and, and what are your what are your takes on it ethically um, as places like DARPA and others are just dumping billions of dollars into these systems? But also on the back end, we receive some benefits from this AI advancement in our day to day life. And so, you know, I, I wrestle with that sometimes trying to balance. OK, I know AI is heavily funded by the war machine, but I also see potential benefits from it. And so how do, how do you reconcile that in your mind, John? Yeah, well, I'm going to be the bad political scientist here and say <laughs> I don't have a number for you. <laughs> That's yeah, sure, the humanities sure. background. Uh, but we've been spending increasingly more and more um, on this on this type of weaponry and research uh, into this for quite some time now. Um, I think the one thing that's really unique about AI and that I focus on a lot in my work is the fact that it's oftentimes viewed as solving these kind of ethical and political dilemmas of warfare, mm-hmm. right? Making war more efficient, um, an almost cleaner war, right? A more mm-hmm. humane mm-hmm. form of warfare. You heard a lot of this in the kind of early drone days that, um, you know, surgical strikes and precision, um, precision strikes and those type things. And that has the effect in the public of giving you this idea that war is somehow more clean, more humane, Mm. less horrific uh, than previous acts of killing. But I push back on that a little bit. And I want to say that it doesn't necessarily absolve us of these ethical political dilemmas, but it removes us one causal step from the act of killing. And that has dangers Mm. as well, right? It has dangers in the sense that it can make war easier 
Mm. Right. We saw that, especially in the Obama administration and his drone wars in Yemen and Pakistan that, you know, he didn't want to deal with the messy issues of what to do with detainees when you capture them because we don't torture was the identity Mm. that he put forth for the United States. And so uh, he launched a massive drone campaign that had huge effects um, on the civilian populations of Pakistan and Yemen. So looking to kind of AI in the future of war, um, I'm nervous in that I think we're putting a bit too much faith in AI. Mm. Uh, so some of my past work looked at the rise of collateral damage estimation algorithms in the US Air Force. And I use that as kind of a foil to think about the problems of AI because we have mm. a lot of good empirical data um, on that. And what we saw with that is essentially um, a lot of misuse and reading meaning into these algorithms to kind Mm. of tick the box of ethics of due care, right? So we'd set forth this arbitrary ceiling of 30 civilian casualties early on in the Iraq war. And if the algorithm predicted more than 30 civilian casualties, it wasn't that you couldn't take the strike. It was that you needed higher up approval. Mm. And so you see a lot of kind of fidgeting, especially at the command level where they'll adjust the fuse delay to make sure that the number gets to 29 instead of 30 so they can avoid higher up scrutiny. Mm. And more importantly, it skews data that, or it skews your targeting in the sense that if something of questionable legal status you want to target um, comes up with zero predicted civilian casualties, you may go for that instead of something that's of a high military value but may kill some civilians in the process, right? Mm. So it skews your decision-making in a way. And I'm interested in that kind of human machine interaction, right? How we think about how on one hand, an automation bias or wishful thinking imbuing machine learning or AI with uh, knowledge it does not possess can be used by humans in the loop or on the loop, so to speak, uh, to achieve kind of political objectives or to fulfill whatever they want to fulfill. And that can be quite dangerous in shifting thinking and especially for accountability for killing, right? When accidents and uh, civilian casualties inevitably happen in war, you can say, well, we ran the algorithm, it said zero, right? But the key thing about this algorithm that I was so shocked when I found out um, was that they never actually took into account the empirical number of civilians killed. Mm. It was entirely theoretical based on population data. And the Mm. way the program was written was originally designed to skew to heavier munition size, to larger explosions in order to ensure target destruction. But the discourse that surrounded it and the meaning that was given to these programs, also known as bug splat, Mm. uh, was that it was there to protect civilian life, right? Which means it should skew to smaller munition size. So that is really kind of informative for me in thinking about, it's not just about what the AI can do, which I could talk all day about the limitations of that, especially in war, um, but how humans and machines interact on the complexity of the battlefield. Yeah, that's that's all good stuff. And that uh, I'll link that article below uh, to this episode. I, I found it really helpful, John. Um, and so I'd like to get your perspective too on um, the conflict in Israel with their, their use of their, um, anti-mora rocket system. And, um, I, I mean, do you think I know most of the systems now are defensive like that one, right? Um, I don't know anybody that's pro offensive systems yet. Um, and I think even people that have, um, close interactions with them, they're still, even though they know it's not going to do it unless I literally turn the key, 
but they're still afraid of it. And so, like you're saying, there's this psychological barrier to it. Um, but Israel seems to be taking a little bit different perspective. And it was almost like they were bragging about their their system and, and the dome system, right? Yeah, and the so, Iron Dome, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite interesting. Um, but do you, do you think that as more and more of these systems kind of come in place, which a lot of places have them, mm-hmm. um, what are your, what's your perspective on just flat out unsupervised, you know, we'll just keep these systems in place. And um, it's purely for defensive reasons, right? Uh, is there any harm to that, I guess? Well, I think when it comes to Israel's Iron Dome, um, I think it's, you know, it's very effective, especially because they're working against essentially, you know, low tech rockets, right? Um, this type, these type of systems are not very effective against more advanced um, kind of incoming uh, missiles, et cetera. So there are limitations to it, but it works for kind of Israel's unique context there. Um, and that's the thing when we talk about kind of AI and and warfare, what a lot of people point to, right? We have all these autonomous systems, especially on a lot of U.S. naval ships that automatically will target, you know, incoming missiles and things like that. Um, and I think that's fair, but it's also uh, we should keep in mind that I believe it was early in the first Gulf War or maybe in maybe later on, but our Patriot missile system mm-hmm. engaged uh, our own our own planes in a blue on blue attack, mm-hmm. essentially. Right. And so we have these kind of inherent limitations there that mistakes do still get made in kind of defensive position. I mean, you know, especially when tensions are escalating, the chance of misperception are much greater. Think of the Iranians Mm -hmm. shooting down the uh, commercial airliner uh, just a few years back as well, right? So you increase the tension, increases a probability for disaster. You know, it's very different on a naval ship where there's no civilians around and taking out high high speed incoming missiles that can't be anything else. But um, I think the real fear and where the debate kind of lies on lethal autonomous weapon systems is, you know, what we think of as drones or something like that, engaging and choosing targets on their own, kind of independent of humans or with a human on the loop, basically saying a human can intervene to stop it, right? Mm -hmm. Or even in the loop, which means a human has to decide to push the button, but then that gets into automation bias and things like that. So I think defensive is the first way that you kind of get introduced to these things. And then you start thinking about the implications for offensive, um, offensive weaponry. And those to me are staggering and frightening. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they are scary. Um, but at the same time, um, a lot of these systems are scary, even when they, they function properly, um, the, the defensive part of it, because, um, you know, we had a guy who was killed because the um the failing system hit a fin of a rocket and you know it's it it's just shooting um self-exploding rounds to you know destroy this rocket and then well it hit the fin and it shot it right down into the cob where people were and you know he died so that was an unintentional death but it's still a death and stuff like that happens um or you know system malfunctions and these are big weapons they're not like 
you know, small arms fire. I mean, these are massive systems. And so when there's an accident, it's really bad. Um, or there's a malfunction, it's not good. Uh, so, I mean, you, you think about that too, but also John, do you think like the, the argument that, okay, well, so-and-so has this weapon system. So, you know, China has it or Israel has it. So we better have it too. Um, do you think that kind of gives off, um, a rise to more development funding, uh, maybe unnecessarily? And does that further exacerbate the problem of um, the war machine? Right. I mean, it leads to these kind of perpetual arms races. And I hate when people frame it, and it's very frequently done in moral terms. Well, the Chinese are doing this, or the Russians are doing this, so we better do it too. That's not a moral argument, right? You can make a strategic argument for that. I still don't think it's necessarily a good one. But when they try and say, you know, we're the good guys, therefore we're going to do it, and it's going to be more ethical than they do it, right? That's mm -hmm. like a third grade moral argument, and I don't stand for that in my classes. <laughs> my students know better than to make those kinds of arguments. Um, but it does, you know, it increases tensions and arms race. You know, that's the big debate right now with the discovery of, you know, the additional 120 Chinese nuclear silos and things like that. And then mm. um, looks like they're changing their nuclear posture. And I think I'm not going to say there's a consensus opinion, but the consensus opinion seems to be, you know, it's not going to be a first strike or anything like that, but they don't want to be held hostage if mm. uh, conventional conflict escalates, especially with the United States or our allies. Um, but also another argument for that was that, you know, our missile defense systems have been built up so much and that we've been investing so much in those that all of these countries are responding with quote unquote hypersonic missiles and things like that, mm -hmm. that fly under the uh, trajectory where our missile defense systems would be effective. Right. And so even defense uh, can spark offense in your enemies as well, too. So I think you have to view those um, kind of on a continuum, right? Each one influences the other and you're thinking through these, these dilemmas of, of security uh, through that lens, but there's always going to be more uh, justification for defense spending, right? Even in a pandemic year, even while we're winding down kind of mm. two wars, essentially, highest defense budgets you've ever seen in the United States, yeah. right? And part of, part of that is just, you know, the kind of, I'll say evil genius of defense contractors, um, in the sense that many of them, you know, they put manufacturing and production uh, in every congressional district in the country so they mm -hmm. can go to Congress people and say, you know, it's it's jobs in your district. And this right. can have the sinister effect sometimes of, you know, military commanders saying we don't want any more of these tanks. And then Congress going ahead and funding, you know, thousands mm -hmm. of more of that because they're building it in their factories in their district. Right. So the war machine in that sense continues to run because it's become extremely profitable. Right. Yeah. And there's always reasons to be scared. Right. And I think that, you know, China's new developments, uh, people are capitalizing that for nuclear modernization, for increased defense spending on those elements that, you know, there's always going to be enemies out there that can justify an insane defense budget. But you also have to look at the domestic front, too, and how people mm. within your community are, are suffering at at that expense yeah there's a um there's a quote in ned's book um i think it's it's eisenhower i believe talking about you know every every dollar we spend on uh, this machine the war machine is is a dollar we can't spend towards 
you know, schools and resources for that in education. And I think that's very true, but I, I guess my one pushback would be um, how many jobs does the department of defense actually create within the United States? And what would it look like if we completely like shut all that down? Let's just, I mean, ideally, let's just say we shut it all down. What does that do uh, to the economy? What does that do to, you know, the everyday people who are depending upon those contracts to have a living? Yeah, right. It's it's this kind of weird, weird thing, especially in the United States that, you know, I, I use the comparison of kind of jails and prisons, right? It used to be not in my backyard. And now it's, <laughs> hey, we want prisons in our backyard. So we have the jobs, mm-hmm. right? It's not a good thing, either morally or um, or otherwise, that we have, you know, one of the largest prison populations in the world, mm. right? And same thing for the defense industry, right? There's just because it provides a lot of jobs, I think you could definitely have a just transition um, away from those jobs as well. And it's, you know, there's, if we could take all of the money that we pour into defense and engineering, and even just take a fraction of that and work on issues like climate change or the environment or something like that, I think we would be in a far better place and everyone would benefit from it. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I just, uh, (laughs) good pushback though. I appreciate it. (laughs) No, that's, that's um that's kind of I'm I'm with you John it's just um it's one of those things you think about when when so many people in in my circles and around here it's like those contracts are important and of course um and I think as too as we don't want to really think about the underbelly of of where that money comes from what it's going to and yeah. uh, and even with the debacle in uh, Afghanistan you know the fallout from that is so much more than just uh, a poorly executed withdrawal, but um, the implications on you know the Pakistanis and and others and yeah. how that relates to China, it's it's all connected and the connections that we and relationships that we were trying to build, etc. Right, and so um, it's complex, man. It's really complex. And so, John, I think, do you could we ever exist without a military force? Do you think that's even a possibility? Like, will we ever give up that addiction? No. (laughs) I mean, easy answer. No, I mean, some countries can and do, right? Uh, But I don't think the U.S. ever will Um, and or necessarily should. I mean, you still need the military, even a bare bones military for defense, Right. Um, And it's something that I constantly grapple with, too, like taken to its logical end. Would I support something like that? And, you know, Ned's book pushed me the furthest that I've ever been pushed um, Mm. in that direction, looking at all of the societal costs of having a standing military and things like that, too. But you also have to allow for the unpredictable and the kind of I'll say even go as far to say like the evils of international politics at times, Mm -hmm. right, that you don't necessarily want to be held hostage um, in theoretical situations in the future. Right. So as, as much as there are huge costs to the war machine, I feel like if we could just cut those costs in half, it would be, it would be a victory. Right. And it would be (laughs) hundreds of billions of dollars that we could allocate elsewhere. But I guess that's the optimist in me. (laughs) Do you, do you think, um, so there's some people like, you know, Andrew Yang, who, uh, believes that certain automation and stuff and taxation of tech companies could actually lead to 
um, a drive for universal basic income. So I, I wonder, just thinking, like, is is there a way that AI might actually help kind of reduce that cost if automation of say like you know the non-essential jobs, yeah. um, you know, supply logistics, those type of things, um, could AI actually reduce that cost? Could it be an answer? I mean, I think there's endless possibilities and that's the thing you're always going toward an unknown future, right? And what we have is hypotheticals, but I mean, you look to the past, kind of every new technology was viewed with skepticism. You know, I mean, you no longer have the, the, the operators working in the room, plugging in phones to all different things to connect you elsewhere, right? And we view that as a good thing and as progress, right? It's going to open up as many new possibilities as it does close down too. But I think the kind of moral ob obligation then on the US, I mean, even short of universal basic income is to have things like uh, free uh, public colleges or free community college at least so that you can have that opportunity to retrain and re mm. and reskill yourself for you know, the problems of the 21st century. And, you know, when it comes to universal basic income, you know, the more I look at it, I think it's, it theoretically could be inherently conservative, right? If you eliminate the expensive costs of all of these various hodgepodge programs and all of the overhead for all of those things, mm. um, if you get rid of all that and then just put the money in people's hands, right? There's, there's a kind of very good logic to that. And it trusts people as human agents, you know, to make decisions rather than this kind of infantilizing can mm. only be used on these foods for these certain things, right? That um, kind of has a lack of faith in people right. and in humanity. Um, I think it's a possibility. I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon in the U.S. And my economics professors will tell you I'm very bad at econ, so I'm probably not the best person to ask about this. But um, I do think a AI more broadly is going to impact the workforce. But simultaneously, you know, even sometimes it's really expensive. You have data servers, storage, kind of all these other things. A lot of things don't need to be automated or made with AI. Right. There's yeah. still going to be people at the grocery store putting stickers on every avocado or something like that. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's just cheaper and more efficient than buying some machine that's inevitably going to break down, mm -hmm. et cetera. So I'm I'm all for the human uh, in all of these things. And again, it's it's uh, it's choices that that we have to make kind of both as a society and at the individual level as well. Yeah. And I think um, just a side aside to that is, you know, we talking about trust in the human. It, it's also that we don't consider that some people find meaning in, in blue collar work. I think that yeah. is extremely lacking. And even, even if people that are new in the military, right. Some people just really enjoy mechanic work. Some people Absolutely. really like working with their hands and getting dirty and they do not want to sit in an office. They do not want to be retrained. They do not like college. They do yeah. not like books, you know, <laughs> and they're not less than because of that. And, and thank God for those people, because, you know, not if your car breaks down, uh, you might be mechanically inclined, but there's some things I can do, but there's a lot of things I can't do. Right. And yeah. so we, we need those other people and, um, and we value their work too. And so I, I don't, I don't think AI is as, savior to all humanity yeah. like some people believe it is but also i don't like the perspective that we have even a government or um maybe we're headed to you know the you know just technocratic 
uh, state, yeah. but I, I don't need somebody to tell me um, what I need to do with my life and and how it needs to be and what needs to be automated, what needs to be you know human oriented. Um, I think we tend to do better by figuring those things out on our own. And I think it's going to alienate a lot of people to, you know, to be constantly bombarded with robots and automation. I mean, you just think about yeah. if you go to McDonald's or anywhere, like, no, I, everybody hates on McDonald's, but I like McDonald's. So judge I had me a if you want lunch to. today. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a normal thing for me, but I didn't have yeah. any, any foods. Hey, <laughs> hey it's not, the healthiest Delicious. thing, but yeah. yeah. But anyway, like you go there and uh, are used to before COVID, like they had all the automation stuff, right? Yeah. It's just kind of annoying. At some point you want to talk with a human. It's just easier. Yeah. Um. So I wonder about how that's going to flesh out, not related to warfare at all, but, you know, just the, the psychology of it and, you know, retraining our human interaction. And um, I don't know, I do a lot with, but senior adults and older people in my job as a pastor. And uh, there's just a lot of alienation um, with what's happening. And I, I don't know that that's being considered. And I don't know that my generation will be as alienated, but uh, people crave just... human interaction, right? Mm -hmm. Even those of us that thought we were um, not quite a recluse, but <laughs> you know, people who enjoyed kind of being with our own thoughts and things like that. I think the pandemic showed like crave community, crave being around people, right? And I think that's one real risk of kind of this robotics revolution, right? It's the assumption that robots can fill all these voids that that really oftentimes only a human hug could. Mm. You know, that you just need that kind of physical connection and that emotional and psychological connection with someone that that AI just can't give you. Right. And I, I guess just to pivot it back a little bit to kind of uh, AI and warfare and kind of killer robots is, um, you know, I think a lot about this too. One of the big kind of ideas about integrating lethal autonomous weapon systems is that, you know, they eliminate the negative aspects of human agency, right? Like bias, panic, dehumanization, all these things that go into um, kind of human agency in new and complex and unknown circumstances like war. Um, but one of the key things is that when you try and eliminate that agency with robots, you also eliminate the positive elements of humanity, mm -hmm. right? Empathy, pity, compassion, that recognition of yourself in the enemy soldier, right? Recognition that they are just like you in many ways, Mm. Right, that kind of humanity that does come out in war. We think a lot about the inhumanity of war, but the hum immense humanity uh, that comes out of war. And robots ultimately lack this agency, right? They don't have the ability to do otherwise. So even when you may be legally justified to pull the trigger, that idea that you don't pull the trigger uh, mm -hmm. because of that. So one soldier yeah. that I interviewed as well talked about how he would often be criticized by people in his unit that, uh, you know, he, they had something called a 51% rule. Whereas if your life is 51% in danger, you pull the trigger, right? So numbers give you this aura of objectivity, right? It gives you this kind of mm. moral comfort in your decision-making, but we all know that 51% is inherently subjective, right? More likely than not. And for him, he had a much higher personal threshold because he wanted to be able to hold his head high and say, I never took a shot that I regretted. 
that was important for his kind of moral conscience and coming back from war and thinking about long-term, that ability to not pull the trigger even when you may be legally justified in doing Mm. so, I think is something that robots inherently lack. Yeah. And maybe they won't one day. I mean, um, I don't know, but I think that's an important aspect of of warfare too. And uh, there's so many stories about you think about international conflicts that might have escalated had, you know, if you've ever been in the Middle East, it's hot. And, yeah. you know, you have you might have somebody shouting at you in Arabic or something, and um, you might be justified to, you know, take, be forceful or even kill or whatever. But not doing that, like you say, might have just prevented escalation that um, a lot of people could have died. And and that's the that's the inherent difficulty, you know, like you send bellow ethics, ethics in war, ideas of discrimination and proportionality, right? It's so difficult to dis, to discriminate between, you know, civilians and combatants, especially in urban warfare. Um, and the idea that an AI would somehow be capable of that is just beyond ludicrous, right? And yeah. <laughs> that it's near impossible. Um, and yet we still, we still use it, um, as a useful tool for thinking about the kind of ethics and laws of war and the idea of proportionality as well, right? That your, your response needs to, needs to be proportionate to the military objectives you're trying to achieve, right? So in some cases, when something's of a high military value, you may accept some civilian casualties and even casualties of your own soldiers. If it's, if it's a high enough value target. Right. But the key is that these are highly, highly context dependent. Right. There's no kind of objective criteria because this is based on constantly moving political and military objectives that are evolving throughout a conflict. Mm. Right. And the idea that you could train AI to kind of objectively make these decisions when the goalposts are kind of constantly moving and changing and evolving, you just can't do it. It's going to be based off of whatever training data you feed it, which may or may not be good. Right. We see this problem all the time with predictive policing. They base mm-hmm. all of their algorithms off of you know, past crime, but everything mm-hmm. we know about policing is it's highly racialized, it's highly racist, mm-hmm. and it just perpetuates these inequalities in a lot of ways. So just because you're using real-world data doesn't mean that that data was good to begin with mm-hmm. or what a robot should be doing morally. Right? Yeah, and so I wonder, like, and I don't know that you would know this, John, but you know, how do you, how do you train better or make better data sets? I mean, I, to me, it just seems impossible that you would actually, like you say, ever get to a place where you have an effective data set to say, okay, because like you say, the enemy in certain, in modern warfare, it's, it's impossible to determine who's combatant, who's a civilian. Um, and, and they yeah, change they, and adapt, right? right? If they change their uniform, you know, if they put on a, a face mask, if they, you know, all these different factors, you know, if uh, if there's a school bus or a bus full of people and there's a child on the bus, you know, does it engage the enemy or not? You know, there's just all these things to think about. Um, and warfare is so complicated and murky, yeah. And and all the nitty gritty aspects of it, it's so much more than you know. You've got these rules of engagement that Geneva Convention, yeah, but I mean. There's no clear cut black or white um, approach to 
any situation that you may face. I mean, somebody comes to the front gate with a small child and, you know, you always have your weapon on you, but you don't have medical stuff on you. So, I mean, it's like, that's, that's your focus and mentality, but there's things you need to be prepared for. Like you, you might have to help somebody who just tried to kill you, (laughs) you know, the other day or, and there are political reasons behind that. And, and so I don't, I don't know. I think if we ever unleash AI and robots in warfare, like we are projected to do, there's almost got to be like this deep psychological empathy training that they would have to go through. I don't know that it's possible, but I mean, they're, they're going to have to see it as closely as a human can see. Okay. You know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't pull the trigger. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of my, my big fear too, is that, you know, right now the official DOD policy is that we always have a human in the loop. Right. And there are, there are real benefits to that, um, but there are real costs to that as well. Mm -hmm. So the benefit is, is that, um, you know, you have still humans making decision and using, if you use it within its limitations, recognizing that it is a tool amongst other tools that you have to help aid in decision-making, I think it can be very useful. Like, you know, a lot of our soldiers, especially in the Air Force too, are using very outdated algorithms and tools and things like this that really don't help you make decisions, Mm -hmm. right? But simultaneously, there can begin to be this real kind of automation bias, right? And so, and the attraction of kind of having these kind of black box algorithms, that's why there's this big kind of push for explainable AI or something like that, that um, black box algorithms can actually promote an automation bias. There's this assumption that machine driven software enabled systems, they're going to offer better results than human judgment, Mm. right? Which in some cases they may, but in some cases, depending on the data that it's trained on may offer you uh, very, very poor, uh, poor analysis. And that's one of the things that in some of the working groups that I've been a part of thinking about AI and, and war is we're scared of what we term move 37, which is comes from when, uh, alpha go, uh, hmm. from Google DeepMind took on Lee Sedol in the go game. And I think it was game two or three move 37, the AI made, um, was completely unpredicted and no move a human had ever made before. So much Mm. so they thought the machine was initially malfunctioning, right? But it turned out to be the winning move Mm. because this AI had played millions of iterations against itself on the Go game. It was making moves that no human had ever seen. And so the fear is in a crisis scenario that AI makes a move 37, which is say something that we could have never predicted that it would do. Say it shoots down like, for example, a Chinese fighter jet, right? Our AI-enabled weapons shoot down a Chinese fighter jet. And China is going to assume assume positive intent from us that we intended Mm. to do this to escalate the conflict, right? And they may or may not believe us when we say it was accidental, right? And so you can see how easily the conflict spiral could roll out of control Mm. by something as simple as, you know, an AI targeting what is a legally legitimate target but something that none of us actually wanted to target in that moment, mm. right? And that's that's the kind of worry that I have about the efficient ordering of warfare in general, right? It's not about just making it as efficient as possible that somehow making it more scientific or technological um, will uh, 
somehow reduce the uncertainties of war and make it more predictable and winnable. But instead, we have to think about some of these moments um, to avoid crisis escalation or for you know real ethical deliberation, even in war, that these are meaningful inefficiencies, right? Sometimes things like democracy, even, these are meaningful inefficiencies for people to have time to deliberate and think through these problems. And I feel, I fear that if we just focus on the efficient ordering of warfare and making it as fast as possible, that we lose a lot of this space for moral deliberation, for deliberation about the ethics of war and you know what we value as a society more generally. Yeah. Yeah, John, I appreciate that. I do. And um, I think too, just as a nation, we're in a crisis to, we really need to rethink the, our, our views of just war. And, Absolutely. Uh, um, I don't know, we need more more scholars like yourself who kind of give an even-handed perspective of it that it there is the high, high, not just financial cost, but moral cost to to what we're doing. And yes, it's in some ways we understand the necessity of it, right? And there's you fight violence with violence. I understand that. Yeah. But um and in some ways with the AI arms race, we've um I think perhaps have crossed some thresholds that we shouldn't have crossed and in China's um, statement about wanting to lead by 2025, which I'm not sure where they are with that, but um, you know, I, I don't know what that will beget, you know, and what, what that will lead to. It's, it's inherent uncertainty and it's, you know, it's, I very much don't view it as kind of, you know, a nuclear weapons moment or anything like that. Um, but it does promote a lot of uncertainty. Right. And that's kind of the fear. And that's why, you know, I have a very love hate relationship with the just war tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, because I see a, a lot of use and abuse um with the rise of just war language, um, you know, for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and kind of beyond as well. Um, Obama was famous for adopting a lot of just war language. Um, but I also view myself and you know, some of us that are more critical that work within the tradition, um, really use it as a language to engage in policymakers in a way that others that kind of critique from the outside aren't able to, right? Yeah. You know, when you talk about use ad bellum, use in bello, you can engage with military, uh, you know, commanders and officials and things like that, as well as policymakers in the military realm. And they are taking, you know, ethics of war seriously and the laws of armed conflict, even if we fall short at times. So I think engaging in that language and using it as kind of a form of imminent critique um, I think is a powerful way to hopefully shift the needle um, away from war a little bit, because I do believe, you know, some wars are justified and sure. some wars are, should be fought. Um, but I think we really need to t take a step back and think that once we engage in war and let loose the dogs of war, we have to think about all of the massive consequences that come mm -hmm. from it, from refugee crises to inevitable you know, civil wars that arise, et cetera. It's not just, you know, our mm -hmm. immediate kinetic effects. It's all the second, third, and fourth order consequences that that we bring to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. And lots of conflicts people will never ever see. Um, yeah. Well, John, thanks so much for your time. Tell us where we could find you, um, books that you're working on, anything you'd like to share with us. Uh, sure. So um, my website is www.emory. E-M-E-R-Y, John, J-O-H-N-R.com. Um, and uh, currently I'm working on a few projects. My most recent article 
came out in Texas National Security Review. It's called Moral Choices Without Moral Language. And I look at 1950s wargaming at the Rand Corporation. So mm -hmm. looking at how they thought about the advent of nuclear weapons and the role of emotion in decision-making uh, for early war games. So thinking about the unknown futures of war mm -hmm. in the past as lessons for the present about what the technological revolution will bring for us today. Wow. And I'll make sure that I'll link that below as well, John. Thanks so much, um, Joshua. It's been a real yeah. pleasure. Yeah, you too. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, make sure to follow me on Twitter and on my website uh, for all the projects that are going on, joshuacasesmith.org. Uh, really appreciated this project and the time that each scholar gave. So I'll see you soon, and we'll be back with more scholars and more jokes and thoughts about robots. Take care.